0: Our reading comes from 1 Timothy 1, verse 1 to 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour and Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true Son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, Stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me.
1: Thanks so much. Well, if you have a Bible close to you, let's turn together to 1 Timothy 1, those uh, verses that we read earlier. I, I spent some time with the minister in session of another church, yesterday, and uh, they were thinking through some issues that they were facing as they were planning uh, for the future. It was an encouragement for me to do that, and I hope it was for them too. Usually really helpful for any sort of leadership group to take some time out and think through and pray about the situation that uh, we find ourselves in as a church. Now, we didn't do this yesterday, but in the past with, with our Kirk session, we have done what you call a SWOT analysis. I'm sure maybe you've been part of some organization that has done that. You look at the strengths and the weaknesses that you face and the the opportunities and the threats that you, you face. Very helpful way, perhaps, of thinking about where you are. Now, threats, as far as a church is concerned, might seem a bit dramatic, but it ought not to be because we know that there are always threats facing any body of God's people. There's always a threat for for disunity. Uh, That's one of the things that we we pray about often, that nothing would creep in amongst us that would set us against one another. But but there's another threat that that really always faces a body of God's people, and that that it is that we would wander from the truth so, the thing that we we prize and, and that we talk about and that we share is less than the truth, less than the truth of the gospel, we might say. And that's always a, a threat. It's been a particular threat for churches in the West where many, many churches and indeed whole denominations have, have wandered from the truth. And it's a threat that figures very highly in this letter of First Timothy. So, as we're going to see tonight… Paul tells Timothy that rather than wander from the truth, he is to contend for the truth. Let's set the scene a little bit for for this letter. Timothy has been given a really big job to do by Paul. He's been asked to look after this church in Ephesus. It's a pretty strategic church in the early days of the Christian church. You've got a map here that you can have a wee look and plan your next holiday on. But you can see that Ephesus is just there in the, in the middle, slightly towards the the right, uh, and it is in, in what today is modern Turkey, of course. And uh, <clears throat> it was a challenging mission for uh, Timothy. Uh, he did have a number of things going for him, however. Not least was the particular relationship that he'd enjoyed with the apostle Paul, really his mentor. Paul, you notice, refers to him in verse 2 as his true son in the faith, and uh, Paul was perhaps instrumental in his conversion, but but whether or not that was the case, they'd been through a lot together. They had uh, been involved in some missionary journeys together, and uh, Paul, whenever he uh, worked with Timothy at that stage, Timothy was probably about 20, and uh, He had been an important member of the team. And so so often, whenever you read some of Paul's letters to the churches, uh, uh, there are a number of places where uh, Timothy is mentioned in the opening greeting. Paul says at points he is no one like him. And and so the the words that he uses are are words of a close father-son relationship. So Timothy has that going for him. He spent ages being formed by this giant of the faith. So so Timothy goes to a Thessalonica, to Corinth, and to Jerusalem with Paul. He, he stays with him while he's imprisoned in Rome. Uh, 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 and uh, now Timothy's in his mid-30s, and Paul knows that the church in Ephesus is in danger, and he sends Timothy to address that danger. So what's going on in Ephesus? Well, Paul had visited Ephesus twice. The first time, Acts 18, he stays briefly, the next time, Acts 19, we find that, find that he returns and he stays for between two and three years. Uh, he's had a, a powerful ministry there, a very uh, impactful ministry. He teaches in the uh, lecture hall of Tyrannus. Uh, a number of people become Christians. They, they, they burn the occult scrolls in the, in the city, and there's a bit of a riot and so on. Uh, uh, and eventually he leaves. And later, as he's passing, he doesn't go back to a. Uh, uh, to, uh, Ephesus itself, but he goes to Miletus along the coast, and the elders from the church come and meet him there, and they have this emotional meeting on the beach, Acts chapter 20, and he charges them with these words. Now, it's about four years before this letter. Keep watch over yourselves, and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw the disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So four years before Paul writes this letter to Timothy, he has gathered these elders around him on the beach at Miletus, and he has warned them that there's a danger that false teaching is going to grow up amongst them and coming in amongst them. And uh, it seems that in the space of those years, exactly what Paul said has come to pass. False teaching has taken root in the church, and the problem is perhaps a little from outside, but also from those inside. In particular, some of the, the, probably the elders, have begun to lead the people astray, aided by some of the prominent and wealthy women. And Paul has a lot to say about the sort of men who should be elders as Timothy is to appoint elders. And I said this morning, uh, this is going to be helpful for us because one of the things that we're seeking to do between now and Christmas is begin the process of electing some new elders to our Kirk session. So the possibility of wandering from the faith is a big theme in this letter. Have a little look with me. Chapter 1 verse 6, some, had, some have wandered away from these. 119, some have rejected these. Four, chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, some will abandon the faith. Chapter 5, verse 15, some have, in fact, already turned away. Chapter 6, verse 10, they've wandered from the faith. Chapter 6, verse 21, have wandered from the faith. You see, this theme that is there all the way through. Now, you think about this in today's world. This just runs against our our sort of culture at the moment, doesn't it? You think of what Paul would say if he'd been to his diversity training seminar. Isn't it great that you've got all these opinions, that you're modeling this very diverse uh, place? No, he says, there's false teaching, and it is causing, will cause some people to wander from the faith. So, if, if you follow that false teaching, he says, you won't end up with a wider perspective on things. You will end up leaving the faith behind. I used to be Christian. Now, here's a, here's a general point just to make as we start this letter. It is a sobering thought to think how quickly churches can get into trouble. One moment Paul is... Kneeling with the elders on the beach at Miletus. Four years later, he's writing to a church that's really in trouble. And I say, if we're to follow the sweep of this church through, the last we hear from the church in Ephesus is in Romans chapter two, or in, in Revelation chapter two, where, where, where Jesus speaks to them and he says, You've lost your first love. So here's a church that's in a, a difficult, dangerous trajectory. And among other things, there's this strong emphasis on the possibility of just messing things up, of the, of the church floundering. And, and we really need to think of that, especially when we think of the privileges that this church has had. They, they, they've had the Apostle Paul teaching them daily for, for, for three years writing a marvelous letter with their name on it, one of the the, the supreme letters in the New Testament, the the letter of of Ephesians. What a privilege they had. What a foundation they had. And yet Paul knows it's fragile. And friends, that's true for us too. We ought not to allow the thought that because there aren't too many seats here unfilled tonight, that that would blind us to how fragile this is. Many churches up and down our land tonight that are empty were once much fuller than we are, and we must therefore pay attention to what this part of God's Word says. Our 200th anniversary will be in 2061. I'll be 93. (laughs) The way retirement dates are going Will be organizing my farewell. (laughs) Will we still be here? Will we still be walking with Jesus? Will we still be contending for the truth? Well, Paul begins to address this problem, <clears throat> and he begins straight away. He, like many of his other letters, he starts with thanksgiving and so on, but not here. He's straight into business. If you look at verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. So Paul is telling Timothy, now you've got to contend for the truth here. The first key thing to to keep This church on on a good track, to put it on a good track, is to do with what is taught. It is to do with the the, the theme of of what these folks stand over. If you've got the ESV, you'll see that in verse 3, it says, command certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Different from what? Well, different from the teaching of Jesus Christ and the apostles that Paul had just given to them day after day and week after week. In the pastoral epistles, Paul often talks about sound doctrine, or the teaching, or the faith. So so it's not just faith, it's the faith. It's it's Christian truth conforming to something. There's a body of of truth that has been put across to these people. Jude, in his letter, really a phrase that you ought to to sort of know and underline and, and, and learn, he speaks about contending for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. So, so, I hope that you realize that as Christians, we're not to be original thinkers. That suits me really well. But we're not to be originally think, original thinkers. Like the hymn we are to, to tell the old, old story. Oh, we've got to do it freshly and, 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 and so on. But we're always referring back to the faith once delivered to the saints. Some of you work with equipment that needs to be regularly calibrated. It it, it either has to uh, deliver a certain dose or reach a certain torque or or, or whatever it might be or measure a certain amount. And and what happens when it's calibrated is that it's brought back and conformed to a certain standard. And you see, that's what we must do all all the time as a church. We, We must be calibrated to the faith, once delivered to the saints. And Paul begins by saying to Timothy, now there's work to do in Ephesus, that this church might not flounder, and it begins with you contending for the truth. Well, let's look at what that is. What is it that the, church, what is it that the truth does? Why is, is Paul so concerned about it? Well, it, it, the truth is necessary for some things to happen, some things that we really, really value. So first of all, we see here that the truth is necessary for God's work to take place. It's necessary for God's work to take place. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. So it's a little bit tricky to work out exactly what was going on in Ephesus, but it seems that that some of the the, the people, some of the elders perhaps, were teaching things that were not true, and and they are people who are not named, but verse 3 tells us that certain people, certain men, and, and, and it looks as if everybody sort of knows who they are. Now this letter was written to Timothy, but it would have been read in the church, and so there would have been a few red faces on the day whenever that happened. And we don't know exactly what they were teaching, but it seems to have been connected with the Jewish law. This first passage is very much about the Jewish law. Verse 7 indicates that. And it also was tied up with some speculative ways of understanding the Old Testament. Very common in Jewish circles at that time. And it went far beyond the sort of plain meaning of, of what was being said. So it might have been let's be careful of this, but it might have been that they were saying something like this. Well, now, you know, it's great that you're, you're a Christian, uh, but Jesus is good to get you started. But if you really want to be acceptable to God and, and make spiritual progress, then you listen to us, because we've got the inside track here, uh, uh, and that'll make a great difference to you. Uh, and along with listening to us now, there are some laws that you've got to obey, in fact, pretty much all of them, and, and you've got to avoid these foods and, and, and so on, and then you're going to know real blessing. That's the way forward. And of course, that wasn't the truth. It was a different doctrine. It was a different gospel. And you see what, what Paul says in verse 4, such things promote controversies rather than God's work. It's an unusual phrase. The ESV has stewardship from God. And the idea is, is the work of God going forward. So in other words, when you deviate from the truth, when you, when you let go of the truth, when you let go of the faith once for all delivered to the saints then the work of God can't go forward. Something else goes forward perhaps, but it's not the work of God. Because only the truth takes forward God's work. It's really easy to, to trust in the wrong things, isn't it? Warmth of a church's welcome, quality of its music, program for our kids. We want those things to be as good as they can possibly be. But if we let go of the truth of the gospel, all of that is empty. Many of us teach, you're hearing about that, and relate. Many of us influence others as far as the message is concerned. So let's pray that we'll, we'll communicate that well. That we'll not wander from it. And, and, and pray for, for others to come and to, to do that with real integrity. Maybe it is that, that God is laying on, on some of your hearts. That you want to give your life. To communicating God's word to other people. The truth is critical for the progress of God's work. That's, that's the first thing. Why else is, is Paul really concerned for the truth? Well, here we see something else. We see that it's, it's the thing that, that allows fellowship to be built. It allows fellowship to be built. I was looking for pictures of fellowship, and they all seemed rather soft. And then I came across this one from "Lord of the Rings," It seemed a bit more robust. <laughs> and uh, pays tribute to the new series on uh, Amazon. Uh, So, so there you are, fellowship. And and in some ways, uh, uh, Christian fellowship ought to be seen as a bit more of a journey rather than just uh, holding hands around a cupcake. Um, And and, and you see that that, that in verse 5, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. No, what's what's going on here? Well, the, Paul has been mentioning controversies that the false teachers foster. So their controversies, their wandering from the truth, was destroying the unity of the fellowship. And, and actually, in a sense, with good reason, you shouldn't have unity if you've got error. But truth, on the other hand, when it is accepted and embraced, produces love. And that's what lies there the fellowship to to flourish. And so, Paul doesn't want the the church to be a place of controversy but a place of love. So, there's an emphasis here on on the, the sort of the personal response to the truth here. Conscience, that's an individual thing, isn't it? Faith, purity of heart, that begins with us as individuals. So, how do you become a more loving church member or family member or whatever. Well, it comes as you hear the truth of God, as you submit to it wholeheartedly. You say, this is, this is God's way, and I'm going to trust this. I'm going to walk in His ways. I'll do what it says. Lord, you know what I need better than I do. You, you know what my life should look like, what my reactions should look like, what even my thoughts should look like. And with your help, that's the way I want to go. So, there's this sort of, first of all, this heart submission to the the truth. And that that allows unity and and love to flourish. And the alternative, you see, is what what the false teachers have done. They started out, it seems, believing the right things. That's quite scary, isn't it? You see, verse 6 tells us, some have departed from these. Implies that they... They believed them at one time, or they taught them even at one time. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. So they departed from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So where did the drift start for these people? Well, it started inside with hearts that no longer embraced the truth. And so they didn't maintain a good conscience or a pure heart. It wasn't that they Found the false teaching more credible, but it was that their hearts led them to believe something different. Uh, I've told you before that the, the little story of uh, N. T. Wright, the bishop, and he told the, the the account of him being at college with a number of students who who started out in, in college believing the Bible to be true, but then as young students they faced uh, big moral questions—the same questions, perhaps that we might face today. Some wanted to sleep with their girlfriends, dabble in drugs, experience a whole number of things that the Bible said were wrong. And so, so they no longer maintained a, a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith, and they quickly embraced skeptical views of the Bible. Why? Not because they particularly made sense, but because they wanted to do these other things. So, that, so the drift, you see, came from inside so outside sometimes it comes the other way, and, 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 and somebody has an intellectual issue that they wrestle with and come to the wrong conclusion. But do be heart. Do be careful whenever your heart says, "I really want the restriction of what I believe to be off," because your heart will soon lead your head in that way. So, so you see, we, we, we need one another to embrace the truth. We, we, we need to, to live it inside, to be committed to it inside. It doesn't mean we, we don't have doubts or we don't have questions. We talk to each other about those. We certainly want to be a place where that happens. But if we, if we wander from the truth, first of all, on the inside or indeed on the outside, we will quickly find that controversy arises, and we're just all over the place. You know, that little phrase, verse 10, we mentioned it before, sound doctrine. Sound is an interesting word. It has the idea of health. Uh, I was at the dentist this week, rare privilege these days, and, and uh, you know that sometimes the dentist will go over your teeth and, and they'll say, you know, horrible uh, experience, lower left one, sound. And then they have a wee hook, lower left two, hmm, cavity or plastic, or something, whatever it is. But to be sound is to be healthy. Actually, to to be sound here is to be health-giving. As you embrace the truth, you see, it it just causes health to spring forth. And you create a a healthy and a loving fellowship. So only the truth embraces a, 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 a... creates fellowship. We, 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 could, we could unite around all sorts of things, but, but none of them will produce lasting fellowship. But the truth of the gospel, well, it will. Last thing, why else is the truth important? Because it's the thing that, that keeps us from turning on one another and turning to the world. Okay, verse eight and following. We know that the law. This is a little bit tricky. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for silly of traitors and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed one, which he entrusted to me. seems a strange way for Paul to go, but but the law is the big issue for these people. And and, and let's just step back a little bit and say, well, what is the law for? You see, there's obviously a proper use of the law here, and there's an improper use. And, And Throughout church history, we've tended to say that the law has got sort of three purposes. One is to restrain evil. It tells us what is wrong. And and therefore, even in a societal way, it it, it puts boundaries on on our sin. The the, the second way, very important way, is that it guides Christians in right living. How do we know how to please God? Well, the law of God shows us the mind of God, and and it, it tells us that. But the third use is to convict of sin, to, to h- allow us to feel our, our guilt before a holy and a perfect God. And it seems to be that sort of third use that's largely in mind here. And, and these false teachers, you see, were obsessed with the Jewish law, but they were using it in the wrong way. They were using it as a, as a means for people to, to, know, to feel as if they were in the right with God, to say, look, look. If you do these things, then then that's you, accepted by God, or that's the way you stay in with God. But that was a wrong use of the law, because that's not what the law is for. So Paul picks up here one of the right uses of the law, convicting people of their need of Christ. So it allows us to see that there's a God who has standards, a God who's standards we are breaking, and therefore who we need a Savior. Luther said that the law shows sinners their sin so that by the recognition of sin they may be humbled, frightened, and worn down, and so may long for grace. That, that's been part of some of our stories. Some of you have told me of, of how you've come to faith, and there was a time whenever you felt just the, the weight of God's standards pressing down upon you. And that's what it's, it's partly for. So that you would see, I, I, I'm not in the right here. I, I, I need help. I need a savior. And it says, we see our need then that we turn to Christ. The law is acting as a schoolmaster, you see, to lead us to Christ. But the false teachers were trying to use it in a completely different way, they'd, they'd turned it to the believers to 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 start to to monitor their lives and to to to, uh, to to try to to give them ways in which they could feel as if they were somehow acceptable to God completely in the wrong and so paul highlights the the law breaking that's going on in the world around them saying look look at this sinful world some of these examples seem to be fairly extreme examples of some of the later parts of the 10 commandments and it's just saying Look at the law bringing this going on here. Rather than improperly use the law on your brothers and sisters, take the law to the world. Preach the gospel to the world. Look at the the lostness of the lost and the need of those around us. One person had said of these elders, rather than telling a lost world it was sick, they were focusing on believers and making them sick. See, false teaching has no burden for the lost. It can't have. It's inward-looking. It's destructive. But the truth produces a burden for a lost world because the story of what God has done is so incredible. And so it prompts us to say to the Word, look at what has been achieved for, for sinful people. We, we, we're just like that. We, we need to be forgiven too. But we've found the one." who brings forgiveness to us. Come and be part of this wonderful salvation. So, only the truth, you see, turns us away from eating each other to pointing Jesus out to a lost world. So, Paul comes together with Timothy and says to him, look, the truth really, really matters here, Timothy. And this runs so contrary to the spirit of our world today where every opinion is valid, where opinion matters more than truth, but it is the truth that takes forward God's Word. It's the truth of the gospel that builds a fellowship. It's the truth of the gospel that prompts us to reach out to the lost. And that's surely what we've got to be about. So, 2061. I'm looking forward to it. What do you think? Are we going to be here? Do you know, I saw just before it came out that there was a young chap called, I think it's Adam Lockridge. He's in jail tonight because today at dawn he got up and he climbed the shard in London. No ropes, no Superman sticky pads. He just climbed a thousand feet to the top of the shard. His parole from trying to do it before had just sort of run out, so he waited until that had got over, and he went to it again. 21 years old. Probably not the wisest guy in the world, but you've got to say he's dedicated himself to something, hasn't he? If we're going to make it, see if our teenagers are going to make it, our relate team are going to say to them, you've got to dedicate yourself to this. You're not going to drift. You're not going to drift to a godly life. And if we're going to make it, as individuals and as church, we got to dedicate ourselves to this too. We've got to go for it. We've got to hold on to this truth, no matter how hard it is at times, because it's the only thing that's going to work.